And, and I think that for far too long, we have been content with a lukewarm expression of faith um, that is incapable of changing broken systems, structures, and relationships. Welcome to ResCov's Letters to the Church, a series where we get to hear from people from all different walks of life. Tell us what they would like to say to the church at this crucial moment in its life. And today we're so very excited to welcome pastor, writer, teacher, among many other things, Dominique Gilliard. Dominique is the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Covenant Church and is the author of Rethinking Incarceration, Advocating for Justice That Restores. Welcome, Dominique, and thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's always yeah, a thanks pleasure. so much, Dominique. Always a pleasure to be with your community. Great. So our first question is kind of that get to know you question, even if we might not need it as much for you. But <laughs> if you were at a party and someone asked you like who you are, what makes you you, how would you respond? Or if Jeff Chu didn't like that question because he said like, well, first I'm an introvert, so I wouldn't be at that party. So if you want <laughs> another way to say that, what informs and shapes how you show up in the world? How do you start to talk about who you are? Yeah, I'm a African-American man from the metro Atlanta area, so a southerner uh, who has lived outside the South for the majority of my adult life at this point, and um, am very aware of how both my Blackness and my Southern roots are perceived uh, mm -hmm. by the world, and I am somebody who was profoundly informed by the witness and legacy of Dr. King growing up in the metro Atlanta area and mm -hmm. having a father who worked for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is the organization Dr. King founded. And I'm a pastor, I'm an educator, I'm an activist, I am a racial righteousness facilitator. And so for me, I would say um, I'm somebody who's profoundly committed to a holistic gospel. Uh, that understands that evangelism is not just the words that we recite, but it's the lives that we live. And I really take seriously scripture's uh, call that says that the world will know that we are Jesus's disciples by how we love one another. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really mm -hmm. committed to a countercultural witness of sacrificial cruciform love in a world that desperately needs more of it. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Um, it's really great to have you with us. Thanks so much, Dominique. Um, one of the realities, you know all this, we've just come out of Pride Month. We're still in the midst of unfolding uh, protests and marches, Black Lives Matter and the struggle for justice and against police brutality. Uh, across the country, we're wrestling with quarantine and all of the impact of that and COVID-19. Um, it feels like there's so much disruption um, in our world right now. Um, extraordinary times marked by uncertainty and grief and struggle. And I'm curious, what do you see as the role of the church in this particular moment right now? Yeah, the role of the church is to not see disruption as a problem, but to mm -hmm. see disruption as an opportunity, um, as a, a, a chance that invites us into traditional Christian practices that have really rooted us in our identity of who we are and whose we are. Um, this is a prime opportunity for the church to engage in confession, lament, and repentance um, in regards to all of the things that you just named. There are ways in which we have all too often 
uh, affirm the oppressive status quo as opposed to being that interrupting, that disrupting presence that the gospel really commissions us to be. When we see our neighbors uh, being persecuted, when we see um, our neighbors uh, being impacted by oppressive systems and structures or legislation or even teachings of the church, um, we get a chance to uh, show the world that we are aware of those things, that we are not going to be defensive in light of people mm -hmm. who want to raise those things. We want to welcome those critiques, learn from those critiques, and commit to doing and being better. And so I would say that's the work of the church right now, um, is to step up, to show up, to, to live with integrity, um, and to commit to being better. And part of how that manifest is to going to the, those places and spaces that the world has really um, started to believe that the church just isn't. And if mm -hmm. it is there, that it's part of the problem rather than mm -hmm. part of the solution. So mm -hmm. like being in those places, putting skin in the game, taking a, a humble Philippians 2 type posture um, and allowing the truth that the world has to speak about who we've been and how we've made missteps to help inform what it looks like to recalibrate our vision and recommit ourselves to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah, I think mm -hmm. disruption, that disruption as, a as an opportunity is a huge piece of, I think, what the church needs now. Um, and as you think about that, um, what do you see as these practices? I mean, you talked about a couple of them, confession and lament. Are there other, pra and repentance. Are there other practices of the church that you think, oh, here are things we've been given that we have for the world. And maybe other things where you think, oh, this is where we really need maybe even the world to teach the church how to live this out better. Either yes. one, you know. Yeah, so, I mean, honestly, I've been talking a lot recently about, yes, confession, lament, and repentance are critical. Uh, those are identity-forming and shaping practices of the church, but I actually believe that there's a practice that precedes those practices that actually mm. help us to understand the urgency of engaging in those practices, and that's the spiritual practice, the forsaken spiritual practice of remembrance. Mm. Um so in the Old Testament, God calls Israel to remember uh, approximately 100 times. And he tells Israel, God commissions Israel to remember in light of the covenant promises that have been made between God and God's people. And when Israel remembers whose it is and uh, whose is commissioned to be in the world, they live faithfully uh, because they were once slaves and God liberated them from slavery and commissions them to never go out in the world and to reenact that type of oppression and justice and systemic sin. And when Israel remembers, they live faithfully. Uh, remembrance is the linchpin for their faithfulness. But when Israel forgets, they're just as likely as anybody else to create systems and structures that benefit some at the expense of others. And Micah 6 really is kind of the passage that really uh, encapsulates this. I mean, we as the church, because of bad inter biblical interpretation, really lift up Micah 6, 8 out of the broader confines of the chapter of 6. And therefore, people lose the substance of the actual chapter. But in that chapter, God is actually indicting Israel, say, like, you mm -hmm. have forgotten who you are and 
who you're supposed to be. And because of that, you have cre you are exploiting the least of these and created these unjust systems and structures. And so when Israel forgets, they ultimately have to go into wilderness where they are taught lessons that they've forgotten and things that they couldn't hear when they were out in plush and plenty. And so right. I think hmm. for us, um, we have to realize that that same thing is true for us uh, today as the people of God. When we forget and when we refuse to remember whose we are and what we were commissioned to be in the world, then we are just as prone as anybody else to participate and create systems and structures of oppression uh, that don't bear witness to who God is and how God is at work in the world. But we actually are working against the will of God in the world. And I think, you know, as Christians, that's a hard message for us and a hard way to even like read and interpret scripture. Like we always want to see ourselves as the prophets delivering the word of God right. and never the people receiving the word of God from the prophets being rebuked by um, the choices and our posture in the world. And so I think for me, remembrance is a key spiritual practice that the church must reclaim if we're going to faithfully confess, lament, and repent. Um, when I think about uh, kind of what the world might be able to teach the church right now, um, I think, you know, for too many Christians, we have been taught that, you know, being apolitical and um, not taking sides is essentially like staying above the fray. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that becomes kind of, what we strive for, um, because we believe that that is a, a nice kind of centrist place where the gospel flourishes. But I actually believe that that's a centrist place where the gospel is ultimately domesticated. Um, and we really live into a pattern where God, you know, rebukes kind of that lukewarm expression and he spews it out his mouth. And, and I think that for far too long, we have been content with a lukewarm expression of faith um, that is incapable of changing broken systems, structures, and relationships um, between people groups and um different institutions in our world that are permanently entrenched and the gospel has the power to reconcile those things, but only when we stop taking this kind of lukewarm posture and actually live with the kind of zealousness that the Holy Spirit is really desiring to stir up within us in this Kairos moment. Yeah, yeah there's so much, there's so much in there. Sorry, Dave. There's so much in there, Dominique. Um, I, re I really, I appreciate the rep the linkage to memory and remembrance. Um, it's one of the things we, Dave and I talk a lot about with our liturgy and worship and how it helps us to remember. I think you said who and, and whose we are. Um, what do you think, I'm re really curious, what you think gets in the way of our capacity or, or the church's way? What gets in the church's way of our ability to remember or what helps us to forget perhaps is a different way of thinking about that. Well, I think it's a couple of things. I think first, we, many of us never even knew the truth to right, start with. Right. Um, mm. And I think that's a consequence of the fact that we live in a nation whose education system is tainted by systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And so it, you can't remember something you never learned. And, <laughs> right. and I think the challenge is that you know, people go to school, trust the system to do what it says that it's doing, which is educate them, that is giving them a, 
an education around U.S. history, but the education that they they're getting is very incomplete um, and very, in some ways, I mean, not to. Well, I'll just be, you know, y'all are my yeah, people. You very, could, you could. <laughs> it's propagandistic, and yeah. and in that way, it's it sets it up for people to be exploited by mantras like "Make America Great Again," because you ultimately are taught that there were certain people from a certain background from a certain kind of lived experience that made this country great to start with because mm -hmm. we exclude the contributions of people of color and women and people who don't fit into our normative boxes and we basically dismiss the contributions that they've made to make this country flourishing mm -hmm. economically and these different things and so you you get hijacked by this certain narrative that ultimately says well, yeah, of course, like we need to go back to that because that's what ultimately created this foundation that we all enjoy. And so like people who want to complain about the fact that, yeah, our founding fathers, they own slaves, but you know, we can minimize that. Like that's not that big of a deal. Or we don't really have to talk about when we talk about westward expansion, the exploitation of Asian Americans when they built the, like we don't have to focus on that because that stuff's not in the history book. So it can't actually be that important. Right, right. And so, mm -hmm. so I think that's the biggest challenge, but the way that I, I think about this is really Luke four, when Jesus comes and gives his, uh, his mission statement. And one of the, parts of his missions is to give sight to the blind. And I think the way that we've mm. interpreted that historically is just Jesus putting his hands on blind people and actually giving them sight. But when we actually take that passage seriously and put it in conjunction with the passage that tells us that we're going to go on to do greater things than what Jesus was able to do during his time on earth, then yes, while some of us do have the healing power to put our hands on people and liberate them from blindness, I think that we have to take a step back and take a sober look at society and ask the question, where is blindness being produced? Um, and when we soberly look at where blindness is being produced, our educational system without question is one of the main sources. So if that's true and we know that, then I actually believe that that passage is a commission for us to actually shine a light on the darkness and to actually say that we are going to become havens of re-education that actually give our members eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to injustice mm. and the way in which we have been fed a broken narrative that really uh, leaves us inept to go out in the world as ambassadors of reconciliation and co-laborers with Christ and trying to mend the brokenness that exists within our community. And so I think we actually need to re-examine that text and actually ask, what does that mean for us as people who are called to actually give sight to the blind? Because right now, when we continue to say, mm -hmm. like, oh, well, this is the education people are getting, um, what can we do about it? Then we right. see the inept response of the church in the face of racial animus. Like, we're complicit with the problem. So instead of being complicit, I think we have to take the onus on ourselves to actually cultivate new spaces and places of re-education within our uh, congregations so that our people uniquely have the ability to go out and live into the gospel in tangible ways. Mm. Yeah, what I what I so appreciate about what you're saying, Dominique, is both the that memory functions, it's not only about, oh, remember this nice Bible story, even the prophet story, but that we have to remember the history, our own history. We have to remember the history of all the people who make up the church, especially those who have been oppressed throughout history and say, 
you know, uh, one scholar calls this, we need a dangerous memory. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, the liturgists love to talk about um, remembering as being not just, when Christ says remember, the Greek word, it means to bring the past to bear on the present. And to me, that sometimes is a thing in the U.S. where we're, we think of the past as something that happened that no longer has any effect on what's going on. Um, so um, do you see, how do you see ways we can bring, I mean, for many people, they know, they live that experience. But uh, of how the past continues to be lived in the present. But do you see ways in which uh, the church can better remember the stories of uh, all these stories? Yeah, I mean, so Mark Charles talks about the need for a common memory. And I really think yeah. that's true within the body of Christ. I think we need yeah. to cultivate a common memory where we acknowledge, like, the doctrine of discovery and how it informs all other manifestations of present uh, mm -hmm. oppression in our nation. We need to commonly acknowledge that we are living on stolen land. We need to commonly acknowledge that all of us have benefited from the all 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 of us have benefited from the exploitation of people of color and the violence that has been enacted in some way, shape, or form against every person of color, a gr the groups of every people of color in this nation. We need to understand that without those things, our nation would not be as prosperous, as flourishing as it is. And I think our inability to talk about that, our inability to reckon with the history and legacy and continual presence of patriarchy, of homophobia, of these different things. Like we have to name these things and to historically kind of help people see when they started to emerge and how they continue to play into the way in which we see and respond to our neighbors today. I mean, perfect example, I mean, would be what we saw with Asian Americans with the rise of COVID. I mean, mm -hmm. you go from being the model minority right. to being the perpetual foreigner overnight. Um, mm -hmm. and, and even, you know, the creation of the model minority myth and how it was intentionally this thing that was created and cast upon Asian Americans as an intentional way to pitch them against African Americans. Right. And, like to help people to understand like these things, this propaganda doesn't just exist in a vacuum. It always has a political purpose and that political purpose drives us apart. Um, mm -hmm. And it really um, speaks against the kind of foundational truth of the gospel that we see in Genesis 1, uh, that we are all equitably made in the image of God. And one of the things that these narratives do, it is to push us away from the biblical truth that we are inherently interconnected, uh, that right. my well-being is inherently tied to your well-being. Um, and that's why scripture commissions us to go and seek the peace and prosperity of our cities, because when we seek the peace and the prosperity of the other, our flourishing is found there. Right. So that's a gospel narrative that directly juxtaposes the king, uh, the uh, imperial narrative mm -hmm. that all you have to do is be concerned about yourself and people who are connected to you. And that's where true flourishing is found. True right. flourishing is found through warfare. True wor flourishing is found through imperial might, not sacrificial love, cruciform love. And so I think we really have to help people to understand how these imperial narratives really seduce us away way from uh, understanding of what does it mean to faithfully follow Christ. That's a good word. Yeah. So in light of your vocation and all the things you talked about, what it, what do you want to say to the church right now in this crucial, I mean, you've been talking about it, but 
what would be your one kind of like, this is what I think we need to be doing as a church at this moment. Yeah, I think we have to acknowledge that we've been here before um, mm. and that the things that are really spurring the, the resistance that we're seeing out in the streets, these aren't new realities. Um, mm -hmm. And if we aren't intentional and persistent, then this will just be another moment instead of actually a true revolutionary movement. And we have to have a movement. Things cannot go back to normal. Um, normal is not an option anymore. Uh, when you actually are with people who suffer, people who are on the underside of the empire, people who uh, don't just walk through the, shadow, uh, the valley of the shadow of death, but live in the valley of the shadow of death, uh, you will see the watershed opportunity we have to actually make our nation live into its proclamations of who it was in its inception. And we have a chance to fight for collective liberation. I think for far too long, we have been content with fighting for liberation within our silos, uh, within mm -hmm. our, for our people. Um, but we are starting to finally realize that we are commonly oppressed by the same systems and structures. Even white folk who believe that they actually benefit from these structures right. are actually being oppressed by these structures. It is dehumanizing in your ability to see yourself as inherently interconnected to me, um, mm -hmm. as inherently connected to the families that are being separated at the border. Um, as inherently connected to our Asian American brothers and sisters who have been receiving hate crimes and um, discrimination at astronomical levels during this season. Um, when we don't see ourselves as connected to those who suffer, even when we go out and we proclaim Black Lives Matter, but we aren't willing to stand up and make that same proclamation for trans lives who are being taken. Like we have to understand like these kind of siloed articulations of freedom, of pushing for uh, liberation, they're inept. Um, and it's only when we commonly come together and realize that we need to push for collective liberation from a system that commonly oppresses us, will we ever start to see the true transformation that we're capable of inspiring um, in our nation if we were ever to truly see ourselves as inherently connected to one another. And I believe that that's what the gospel calls us to, to see. Um, I think the gospel calls us to see that we live in a world that creates all of these lines of division. Um, and that, um, you know, real quick, I, I'm going to go high real quick. So uh, <laughs> there's a professor, a former professor, well, professor named Jay Cameron Carter, who uh, talks about um, the image of God. And he talks about how, you know, if we want to take scripture seriously, uh, God is fully manifested in the three persons. And so when we actually talk about the image of God, it's not just, oh, I respect the image of God in Dave. I respect the image of God in Aaron. The image of God is fully manifested in communion, uh, communion mm -hmm. with people. And I mm -hmm. would say it's most explicitly manifested when we commune with people that the world socializes us to think that we are not connected to. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we step up and show up and speak up, um, for the humanity and the dignity of people that we've been socialized to actually disdain or think uh, as invaluable, I believe that's the most profound manifestation of the image of God manifesting itself here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.
Well, I think yeah. that's a good place as any to, <laughs> <laughs> to leave us. Uh, and thank you so much, Dominique, for taking the time. Uh, we're so grateful for your, your voice, not only uh, in our little corner of the world here in Chicago, but to the larger church. Um, you're doing important work and we are grateful for you. So thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks uh, so much, Dominique. We really appreciate it. Anytime. I always love to be with you and your people.